Father, we come to you now as our creator and as our Lord. You are God and we are not. And we come to you now tonight just in recognition of our need for you. God, we bring to you all of the needs that surround us right now. We think about uh, acres and acres that are still expanding and burning, homes that are under threat, uh, people's livelihoods and lives that are being destroyed right now. And we just pray, God, that you would have mercy on us. God, we pray for your protection over all of the fighter fighters that are out there right now. God, would you give them strength and grace to endure this very difficult time? And Father, we pray for all of those whose lives are affected by everything that's going on around us. I think about people who even over the last week have gotten sick because of asthmatic conditions, because of the smoke, uh, some who are even in the hospital right now. God, have mercy on them and heal them, we pray. And Father, I think uh, even right now about Maureen Georgiades, a longtime member of our church family who even now is reaching the end of heart failure. And we just pray, oh God, that you would be present with her, that you would surround her with your love and with people who can care for her well. And Father, together we also ask that as we open up your word, that you would now open up our hearts and our minds, that you would speak, that you would make us attentive to your voice, and that your voice would be louder and more powerful and more determinative in our life than all of the other voices around us. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. So hey, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, we have been in a series looking together at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the first century city of Colossae. And beginning last week and into the next two weeks, we're going to be looking together specifically at what this letter has to say about the cross of Christ. And so if you are new and you're kind of new to Christianity, this is a great time for you to be joining with us because tonight we're really going to be plumbing the depths of the mystery that stands at the very heart of the Christian faith, which is that declaration that God has been crucified among us in Christ. And so we're going to be exploring together tonight and in the weeks ahead all that that means. Now, the New Testament authors, what they frequently do when they talk to us about the cross is they, they regularly take the event of the crucifixion and then they surround the event with metaphor and with symbol in order to help us understand the meaning and the significance of the crucifixion. And the Apostle Paul does that in the text that we're looking at today. He, he takes the event of the crucifixion and he surrounds it with a myriad of images to help us understand its significance. And so, for example, uh, he speaks about the cross strangely as uh, he draws upon the metaphor of circumcision to help us understand what the cross is about. And then he draws upon the metaphor next of the law courts and then finally, he, he draws on the metaphor of the battlefield to help us understand the meaning and significance of the cross. And what I want to do tonight is I want to just look together at that second metaphor, the one that's drawn from the law court to help us understand the meaning and the significance of the cross. And Paul uh, speaks about this in chapter 2, verse 14, but we'll put it in its context and we'll start in verse 13. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Colossians 2 and look at verse 13. And here he's going to declare to us how the cross of Christ affects forgiveness in our life. And look at how he puts it in verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses. He says, you have been forgiven of all of your trespasses, but how? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I want to first draw your attention to that arresting and in some ways disturbing phrase, the record of debt that stood against us. Here he speaks to us about this record, this recording of all of our transgressions and sins that stood against us, kind of condemning us. You know, in Paul's day, it was common to believe the quite terrifying idea that there was this heavenly book where all of our evil deeds were being stored. I mean, think about that. Every wicked thought, every idle word, every stupid and selfish thing you have ever done was recorded in a heavenly book with a view that at the end of time, this book would be opened and brought out and all of your deeds would be exposed. And that's a pretty unsettling thought, isn't it? I mean, just imagine if I had a flash drive in my hand and on this flash drive was stored every mean-spirited word you ever uttered on the freeway, every hypocritical way you've angrily launched into your kids, every perverted thought in your imagination, every selfish motive in your heart, every self-righteous attitude, every destructive use of food or beer or whatever, every lie you have ever told, everything was stored in that flash drive. And then that information was downloaded on a computer for everyone to see displayed upon a screen. Is that not unsettling? It's pretty terrifying. Reminds me of a Johnny Cash song. Well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man. I love Johnny Cash. But as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. And this isn't just religious fiction. Uh, this, this reality that's attested to in uh, Johnny Cash's song and that was thought of in the imagination of people in Paul's world who thought that there was this heavenly book, it attested to a reality. And the reality is this, that there are legal demands. There is a cosmic law to the universe. It's not an impersonal cosmic law. It reflects the very personal will of the true and living God, who in his very essence and nature is love. And God's will, God's law for all of creation, for all of humanity, is that we would love each other, that we would extend compassion and kindness, that we would practice justice in this world, that we would be faithful stewards in the creation, that we would love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is God's will for all of, all of us, and yet we violate this will we continually fall short of this law. And we are being held accountable for that. Those deeds are recorded in God's imagination, in God's mind. God sees and God knows, and God will hold us responsible for every way in which we have violated his goodwill for his world. Revelation 20 puts it like this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what 
they have done. And so do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, there is a day coming when all that we've said and done and thought about, all of, all of those things that you are ashamed of and embarrassed of, will, th- those things will be exposed and will be brought out into the light. Now, somebody says, well, this is what I don't like about Christianity. You know, you people keep resorting to scare tactics, you know, and a lot of people, they think, look, the reason why, uh, you know, you talk to people about judgment and sin and all of this is for the same reason why uh, many parents teach their children about Santa Claus. And why do parents teach their children about Santa? Well, it's to stir their wonder and their curiosity, says someone. Yeah, but it's also a tool of manipulation and control. Can I get a witness? You know, because it's November, you know, and, and you can get your kids to obey. You know, you better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. You better not shout. And I'm telling you why, because Santa Claus is coming to town. And many people think about God that way. God is, you know, you're using this whole religion thing in order to get us scared because, yeah, ultimately you'll have to answer to God for what you've done. And of course, Christianity and religious teachers have used this sort of thing as a tool of manipulation and control. But what I want you to see from the scripture is that, listen, the Bible takes sin and judgment seriously, not because it's trying to scare us. The Bible takes sin and judgment seriously because it takes humanity seriously. Listen, according to scripture, the universe is not closed. We are not soulless machines. The endless succession of cause and effect predetermined to do what we do by our social upbringing or our genetics or whatever. We are not mere objects or patients or cases or highly evolved predetermined bags of molecules. According to scripture, we are human. And as such, we bear the image of God, and we have this immense dignity and worth. And part of the dignity and worth of being a human being is that your actions matter. What you do has immense dignity. What you do matters. The words you speak, the thoughts you think, the texts you send, the the deeds you do, the things that we do matter. And, you know, we want to matter, don't we? I mean, we don't want to wander around thinking that life is just this senseless, nonsensical, you know, accident. Like, we want our actions to be significant, to know that when I wake up this week and I plan and I act and I work, that it's not all for naught. Like, it, it matters. And the Bible says, look, the reason for that is because you are an image bearer. You know, and because you bear the image of God, your, your deeds, your actions are worth God noting and recording. You know, I don't believe that my dog Brutus is going to have a record of all of his wrongs that he's done for his whole doggy life. But it's because he's a dog. He's not a human being who's created in the image of God. But you have been made in the image of God. And I think we want to know that our deeds do matter. And I think we also want to know that evil matters, right? That when you look over the course of human history, I mean, just think of the 20th century and all of the atrocities, you know, ranging from Nazi Germany to the Bolshevik Revolution and all that followed in communist Russia, to the lynchings in the South here in our own nation, to, you know, the the, the killing fields in Cambodia, to the Armenian genocide under Ataturk. I mean, think about all of the evil. We want to know that all this stuff, is, it, it matters that people treat other human beings this way. And it's going to be exposed. 
and, and human injustice and evil is going to be held to account. And the creator of all things will rule over this world. And he will say, no, that is not right. We want this. And yet on the other hand, you know, we don't want this. You know, as uh, one uh, theologian named Fleming Rutledge put it, she says, you know, if, 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 if all will be held to account, if justice is for all, then it raises the possibility that that same justice might come upon oneself. You know, recently I've been reading uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago. And he was a, a prisoner underneath communist Russia, and he, he suffered immensely in prison camps. And, and, and he just had this terrible experience of being treated so unjustly, like literally millions of others who were treated unjustly. And he writes in this book really to expose, to speak the truth about the atrocities he had experienced and that were being committed but then at one point in this book, he says this, he, he has this whole chapter called the Blue Caps, where he's talking specifically about the guards and how they treated him and all of this stuff. But then toward the end of this chapter, he says this, he says, let the reader who expects this book to be a political expose slam its covers shut right now. He says, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But then he says this, the line separating good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. And I think we hear that and we know that that's true. You and I, we are a part of the sea of humanity that has committed so much atrocity. And so one day God will pull the curtain back. He will be revealed as the world's true king. He will hold the world to account. And on that day, what we've done, what we've said, what we've thought, how we've acted, what we've done, it will matter on that day. Evil will matter. It will be exposed. And in some ways that's disturbing, but it's interesting because in our text, Paul doesn't tell us about this record of wrong that stands against us in order to freak us out. Instead, he tells us about this in order to encourage us. Because look at what he says. He says, the record of wrong has been canceled. It's been erased. Look at how he puts it in verse 14. Or we'll start at the second half of verse 13. He says, God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt by erasing it, by removing it, all of the wrongs you have said and thought and done, he says, possibility of it being utterly canceled, eradicated, erased. Now, I think most Americans misunderstand the biblical teaching at this point. We think, well, yeah, exactly. This is what God is going to do. You know, he's going to let us off the hook. You know, ultimately, God will forgive and forget. But that's not what Paul is saying. God is not simply going to let us off the hook. You know, I can remember back when I was in the seventh grade, my brother and I, we used to take my mom and dad's Chevy Capri station wagon out for a joyride uh, regularly. My brother was in eighth grade. He was um, not any taller than I was at the time. We were probably both like 5'2". And the Chevy Capri station wagon was, it was a big old wagon, you know, and so we would be driving this thing around, you know, and, uh, and at first, we started to take the car just out around the neighborhood. And so we'd ride it just around, you know, kind of the local streets. 
And then one day we, we understood that my parents were going to be gone for several hours. And so we decided that we would take the car now out onto the main roads, you know? And so we got in the car, you know, and we're in this old 1982 Chevy Caprice station wagon. It had this Jesus Live sticker on the back. It was awesome. And we're, we're cruising up Spring Street in Long Beach. And we're, my parents weren't going to be home for hours. We're driving up the street. And, and we're, we're getting really excited. It's just a f- fantastic, you know, we're kind of like cruising around, you know. And I don't know how we didn't kill someone. It was terrible. But we were driving past Albertsons. And we looked over and my parents were pulling out of the driveway at Albertsons. And so my brother and I, you know, we're looking and we're going, ah, and we think, what are we going to do, you know? And we thought, you know, maybe we'll go to Mexico. We thought, no, we can't do that. You know, we don't have any money. We can't pay for gas. You know, we, we just have to go home. And so we, uh, we turned the car around. We went home, pulled up in front of the house. My parents' car was already there. Walked in. My mom was now out in the backyard with a hose spraying the, the, the lawn down. And she looked at me and she just said, you know, you boys are so lucky your dad didn't see you. And my awesome mom let us off the hook. And you know, I think some of us think about God, God's going to, you know, at the, the end time judgment, you know, yeah, God's going to, but he's going to let us off the hook. But listen, God is holy. The angelic beings do not cease crying out before his face day and night, holy, holy, and holy. In his presence, righteous Isaiah says, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And listen, the holiness of God is meaningless if it doesn't encompass within itself just retribution against what has been done wrong in God's world. You know, the one thing God will not do in the face of all the injustice and hate and racism and classism and environmental degradation and enslaving of other human beings and sex trafficking, and self-centeredness, the one thing God will not do in the face of all of that is nothing. The one thing God will not do is just sweep it under the rug. That stuff has to be dealt with. It's got to be dealt with. And what Paul reveals to us in this text is how God has dealt with it, how God has named and exposed the wrongs that are done in history. And this is so incredibly important, what he says next in this text, because, you know, I I was reading again in this uh, Gulag Archipelago, and there's this other section where Solzhenitsyn, uh, he he talks about how the difference between, you know, Lenin and Stalin, what happened at the end of that era, and what happened at the end of Nazi Germany, is he says, at the end of Nazi Germany, he says, there was the Nuremberg Trials. And he says, 86,000 Germans were tried, their deeds were exposed and condemned. And he said, relative to that, he said, the atrocities in Russia, he said, maybe 10 people were tried. And he wrote this. He says, it is too late for an equal kind of retribution. But let us be generous. We will not shoot them. We will not pour salt water into them, nor bury them in bed bugs, nor bridle them into a swan dive, nor keep them on sleepless stand-up for a week, nor kick them with jackboots, nor beat them with rubber trenchons, nor squeeze their skulls in iron rings, nor push them into a cell so that they lie on top of one another like pieces of baggage. We will not do to them any of the things that they did to us. 
But for the sake of our country and our children, we have the duty to seek them all out and to bring them to trial. Not to put them on trial so much as their crimes. Not to put them on trial so much as their crimes. And to compel each of them to announce loudly, yes, I was an executioner and a murderer. We have to condemn publicly the very idea that some people have the right to repress others. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, there is, it is needed to have evils exposed and condemned. It is needed for those things to, to be brought out into the light. And what Paul is telling us in our text is that all of our wrongs, all of the evil, the injustice of this world, it has been brought out to light. It has been exposed publicly and strangely and mysteriously through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's interesting because look at what he says in verse 14 again. He says, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, how? By nailing it to the cross. You know, the language that he uses here would not be lost on his first century audience. They were familiar with crucifixion, you know, crosses with dying prisoners littered the roads throughout the Roman Empire. And the cross wasn't just a painful death. I mean, the cross was an incredibly painful death. The word excruciating in our language is derived from the experience of crucifixion. It was painful back lacerated, limbs wrenched out of their socket, feet and hands nailed to a wooden beam, hung in excruciating agony for days. It was painful, but it wasn't just painful, it was shameful. Prisoners were stripped naked and passerbys would heap insults at them and spit at them and jeer at them. But it was even worse than the pain and the shame because for a faithful Jew to be crucified, to be hung on a cross was to be cursed by God. It was to be expelled not only from the realm of the living, but from covenant with God to be removed from the very circle of God's love to his chosen people. And this is the death that Christ died. And the irony is, is that in verse eight, it says that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It is the man Jesus who is on the cross. It is real human pain and suffering. Paul says that in the suffering, the dying of the dying Jesus, you see God. Here, God himself was pleased to dwell. Here, God himself was pleased to put himself in the place of the shamed and the accursed and the guilty and the God forsaken. Why? Well, it's interesting. Paul talks about the, 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 our sins, our record of debt being nailed to the cross. And I think what he's referring to is that in the ancient world, during crucifixions, the crimes of the accused would be nailed to the cross above their head so that everyone could see why they are dying. And do you see what Paul says? He says that Christ had above his head the crimes for which he was dying and the crimes for which he was being accursed, the crimes for which he was being judged unjustly was our record of debt. It was my sin and your sin that held him there. Christ was suffering. Christ, who was the innocent one, was suffering and dying in the place of those who were guilty in our stead and for our sakes. And here is how God publicly exposes and deals with sin. It is in the death of Christ on the cross. 
What we must suffer is curse. It's God's no, it's God's rejection. It's God forsakenness. And what we must suffer falls on Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, there's this great story uh, of King David. It's the most well-known story in the Old Testament, practically, of King David going to battle against the giant Goliath. And as the story unfolds, uh, the the Philistines are on one side of the valley and the the children of Israel on the other side of the valley. And the Philistines are this powerful, mighty army. They're threatening the Israelites over here. And so the Philistines send out as a representative for the whole army, their giant Goliath. And the giant says, hey, send me somebody else to represent the entirety of Israel to come out and to be your representative to face me in battle. And of course, it was the small uh, shepherd boy, David, who comes out to face the giant Goliath. And he stands as a representative for the rest of the children of Israel. And though he is small and weak, he defeats the great giant Goliath and the whole army that he represents. And so too, what Paul is saying is that Christ has acted as your representative. He has been our champion who's gone out before us, who has faced the giant that stands before us, namely our own sin and guilt and shame. And he has defeated it by his own glad self-giving death on the cross. God himself in Jesus Christ, his son, at once true God and true man, takes the place of condemned humanity. I mean, this is, the be- this is the most mysterious and glorious and beautiful stuff of all that we hold to as followers of Jesus. Here in Christ, God's judgment is executed. God's justice takes its course, but in such a way that what we had to suffer is suffered by this one who acts as God in, in, in our stead, as our representative. He stands for us before God, taking upon himself what belongs to us. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Or as 1 Peter 3 puts it, for Christ suffered once for our sakes, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or in the words of that great hymn, bearing sinners, scoffers rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Friends, this is incredibly good news and it means so, so much. You know, I want to invite our band to come up right now. And I just want to say this in closing. Look, Think for a moment about your record of debt. I mean, just call to mind right now kind of those things that haunt you from your past, those patterns that haunt you in your present, the stuff that kind of bears you down. What is declared to us in this text is that we have been set free from that record of debt. Now, don't get me wrong. You're not free from the hard work of repentance. 
You need to keep doing that work. You are not free from being honest about your past. In fact, the knowledge that God loves you in spite of your past gives you the, gives you the, the confidence and the courage to not be so defensive and insecure and accusatory of others, but actually to speak honestly and truthfully about yourself. But it does mean this, you are free. You are not pinned down by your dysfunctional family or by your past failures or by the patterns of sin that have existed in your parents and now are existing in you. You are set free. Those things do not define you. Your past is not what is definitive in your life. It is God's love for you in Christ Jesus that defines what you can be and what you can live into into the future. And so when that record of debt comes on in your mind, when it's triggered, preach the gospel to yourself that Christ has come and that he has set you free. Speak these words over yourself. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, and he is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or pandemics, or earthquakes, or fires, or smoke, or heat waves, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord.